0: Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile of old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing the popularity and critical acclaim of literary historical fiction. Hey, Chelsea. Hey, Sarah. I'm really looking forward to talking about historical fiction with you today. Are, have you always been a, an avid historical fiction reader?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would say like now, I, I don't know if I would consider myself as big of a historical fiction reader as I was when I was an early reader and then sort of um, in my slightly younger reading days. I loved historical fiction. I absolutely ate it up as a kid. The Dear America Diaries, The Royal Diaries, The American Girl Books, Little House on the Prairie series, all of that. That was my jam. What about you?
0: Yeah. I I, I loved all of those as a kid too. Though I, oh, Especially, I mean, those books, The Royal Diaries and The Dear America that had the ribbon. You just put yes. like a little ribbon bookmark in something and- I they will read it. They should still do that. They should still do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I loved him. And I, I, I'm, just, I'm excited for this conversation. I feel like we could dive right into it right now because I wouldn't think of myself necessarily as a historical fiction reader, but then I look at what I've read and I really am. But we want to explore this trend or is it a trend? has it always been around, question of literary historical fiction. But before we do, we're going to tell you about some of our recent reads. So Chelsea, what have you
1: read recently? Recently, uh, as in like two days ago, I've read Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls, which I first heard about from Ann Patchett on her little Instagram reel series where she pops on and she holds up a book and she's so cute and she says remember a new book is just a book you never heard of and she usually goes through backlists and classics um and so I first heard about it there and then you have recommended it multiple times as well so I found it when I was browsing my local independent bookstore And picked it up thinking it would be the perfect kind of eerie, creepy read for October. And it was. This book is about a somewhat desperate, sad housewife who falls in love and houses an amphibian man, um, a frog-like, green, tall man um, who loves avocados. And... (laughs) And that's all I really want to say about it, because I think if that's not enough to hook you, that's it's not the book for you. If that like little weird description is interesting to you, then absolutely read it. It's only like 100 pages. But if none of that sounds appealing, it just might not be for you. It's not majorly sci-fi or fantasy. It's surrealist and there are a lot of like suburban American details in it. It's great reading it with a post-colonial lens because the title, Mrs. Caliban, um, is an allusion to The Tempest. And um, anyway, it's, it's very much a modern classic. I think that it was published in the 1980s and was kind of resurfaced fairly recently. But it was great. I really enjoyed the reading experience. It's a book I would love to discuss with other people. Um, And I'm very into the short modern classics, that like 100, 150-page novella. That's just been so great right now. Agreed. I first heard about it,
0: it's one of Marlon James' favorite books. He talks about it all the time in his podcast, Marlon and Jake Read Dead People. And I mean, he can sell me on any book with his descriptions and amazing voice, but yeah, he's talked about it so many times. I finally picked it up. So I'm glad that you did too and that you liked it.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners would like it. So check it out.
0: All right. My recent read, I'm actually in the middle of this. And so this isn't a recommendation. This is just, I'm telling you (laughs) about a recent (laughs) read. (laughs) but it's very um in line with our conversation last month about rebecca um because i would describe this as domestic suspense but like domestic in um in quotes because the the domestic sphere in this book is the library rather than a home and Ooh. yes so it's called how can i help by laura sims and it is about a woman named Margot. Well, who's going by Margot? That is an assumed name, an assumed identity. She is on the run, and she has found a sanctuary in the library where she is a very efficient um, assistant, and she's kind but with an edge, and people are maybe a little unsettled. By her often. Um, But she's always good at making them feel really comfortable again, even if she's done something a little bit off. This is not a spoiler. I'm going to tell you up front because this will determine whether or not you want to read this book. Margot is a serial killer. She is a serial killer nurse who has helped many patients on their way to death. And in an extremely creepy manner, she kind of like gets off a little bit on, on mm. this. Yeah, it's so creepy. I didn't really read the back cover going in. I'm not sure I would have picked it up if it were <laughs> if I had fully known. And then um we have a second point of view. So we're in Margot's head for a lot of the book. And then we have a second point of view. Um I think her name is Valaria. Now I'm forgetting the name of the second point of view person, but she enters the library as a research librarian. And, but she's an aspiring novelist. And she just thinks that Margot is a really interesting character. She's like, hmm, my first novel got rejected, but like, I still want to be a writer. And this woman is just, I'm going to take notes on her because she is odd. And so then it becomes this like cat and mouse of Margot, she thinks maybe this other woman gets her she wants her to see her for who she really is but you know what does what does that mean and how are these two women's lives going to become entangled it very i mean it's it's a lot darker than anything i think we've talked about on the podcast or read on the podcast but it still clearly has roots in things like rebecca and passing and anything where there's just like this intertwining of of two women to the point where their identities get uh blurry and you know it's going to be dangerous for one or both of them. So um if you're looking for something pretty creepy, I I don't know how this ends. So this is one of those books where the ending could really <laughs> make or break yeah. the book. But um definitely helping me helping me through is reading it with that kind of history of domestic suspense lens that we used when we talked about Rebecca. So that's How Can I Help by Laura Sims.
1: All right. Well, neither of those were historical fiction. No. Last (laughs) Um, Modern Readers
0: episode, we were so on theme.
1: This this month we were like,
0: let's show that we're not always going to be so on theme.
1: (laughs) That's how it goes. So – I want to kick off this conversation by saying that I really burned myself out on World War II historical fiction. I read a lot of World War II historical fiction in high school and college and sort of beyond just because I was so used to that because it was a really great gateway from the books of my childhood to adult reading when there wasn't a lot of YA in between for my particular moment in time. The YA explosion happened when I was getting out of college. So, World War II historical fiction was like a very safe, appropriate, and available avenue for me to go into adult reading in my adult reading life. And then I just got really burned out on it and felt like I was reading the same book over and over again. So, Now I do feel like my historical fiction taste has changed and I lean very heavily toward literary historical fiction, which is what we're talking about today. And I think we're going to have to talk about the difference between historical fiction, women's historical fiction, literary historical fiction, kind of those subtle differences. But we should probably define historical fiction, period, to begin with.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, obviously historical fiction is an author, a a book that is written about a time period prior to it, a book that takes place in a time period prior to when it's written. But how far prior I think is a little bit of a debate. Do you have a sense of like what you consider the cutoff for historical fiction
1: to be? I think that today, in 2023, if an author is writing about the 80s or the early 90s, they're writing historical fiction. And I think that's an unpopular opinion for people who don't want to think of their childhoods as historical.
0: <laughs> I so I I think I I would push it a little bit, but with a caveat. I think that for me it's closer to like 50 years prior. Um, because I feel like if the author is writing about a, a, um, time period they experienced, it is different. It doesn't feel so much like historical fiction to me because they're not like researching. They're not like writing about, um, they're not doing that kind of level of historical quote unquote work that feels like part of the historical fiction experience to me. But I think that there certainly are books that are set in the 80s and 90s that are historical fiction because it's it's really grounded in the history and culture of that time period. So to me, like if it's 50 years or, or earlier, it's definitely check the box historical fiction. If it's in that murky area of like 50 to like, 30 years, 20 years prior, then if the book really is grounded in the culture of its time period, it's like, oh, this author is doing something very 90s with this book, then it's historical fiction. If it's just like feels like a book that just happens to be <laughs> in the 90s, yeah. then I wouldn't qualify it as historical fiction. And I know that line is murky. Like I can't give you examples even or um, things that I'm looking for to know if it's historical fiction or not. It just – I just think you can tell like, oh, they're, they're really trying to evoke the 90s with this book. That makes it historical fiction to me versus like, oh, I guess this book takes place in 1995. Okay. Yeah.
1: I'm just gonna <laughs> continue on. That makes sense. And I also think so kind of the counterpoint to that is, yes, I think historical fiction requires some research on the author's part. But a reader could experience, I mean, when I read a book set in the 80s, because that's, a decade that I certainly, I know all of the music because that's what my parents played in the car. Um, I know a lot of the details because like that was, that was the decade of my parents, right? Like that was their pop culture time. But if I'm reading a book, to me, it does feel new and like something that I didn't experience. And like, I'm getting that experience and research and detail from the author, whether they lived through the eighties or whether they really researched it. And we – I mean, the 80s, that is coming up on, like, the the
0: 40-year mark. Yes, but you could get that same experience from a book that was written in the 80s and about the 80s. So if we base it too much on reader experience, then I think we get murkier. But I I think that that is a really valid point. Like, the way the reader experience is, like, oh, this book is really evoking the 80s as something – that is new to me and i'm or, or you know familiar but new i wasn't there and exploring the cultural touchstones of that time period it might feel like historical fiction it might it might feel like the history is important um but that could come from a book written and published in the 80s as well as something that was written looking back so yeah oh this is that's such an interesting question and i think that one important thing to note, right, is that all genre really comes down to marketing and who the marketing team is trying to sell the book to. And so it's really fun as readers and podcasters and people who like to think about the literary landscape to like piece through these things. But there's not necessarily a right answer other than who the marketing team's trying to sell
1: it to. <laughs> true, true. And I think um to kind of expand on your point here about like you could read a book from the 80s and get that sort of sense of the time period. I think with historical fiction often it's looking back at an event.
0: Mm, great or point. A, yeah.
1: Um a social change, something significant in history that you might find in a textbook or you might not specifically because it's unwritten about. So I think there is an element, there is an event element to it. So if you're reading about the Cold War in the 80s and there's like a specific event that happens or a specific piece of that history, that feels like historical fiction rather than like I don't know if We write Upon Sticks by Kwan Berry particularly feels like historical fiction just because it's set in the 80s. There's a lot of great detail, but it's not – it's focused on something different. Mm-hmm. It's not focused on an event of the 80s and how the characters are reacting to that event in history. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there is there is sort of that, like, significance of the time period. Mm-hmm. So I think – you know, if someone was writing a book about the early 90s today, if it had to do with a specific event from the early 90s, it might read more as historical fiction because they would have to do a lot of research and digging for that specific event more than just setting it in a in a place and a time. In a random suburb in the 1990s, Right? 90s, yeah. Like even Wellness by Nathan Hill, so that's set in the early aughts mm-hmm. and kind of back and forth in time does not read as historical fiction, even though some of those things are recognizable as like, oh, well, that time has passed now. And that's maybe what, you know, 20 years ago that he's writing about. So that does feel too early, but I would say maybe like that 30, 40 year mark depends on what the focus is. If it's just the setting, that's one thing. If it is writing about the history of the time, an event or something that happened, I'm thinking, um, So the Nickel Boys was written in – or it takes place in the 60s, right? But it's about a specific historical moment and place Mm -hmm. in history. Um, And I think that that sort of event is central to the text. Not that it has to be, like, all about a a battle or a bomb. Like, it doesn't have to revolve around something like some big event like that. I'm just saying, like, a social shift – something something big that we might look back on and, like I said, put in a textbook or leave out of a textbook for some specific reason.
0: Yeah. Even thinking of something like uh, Kevin Wilson's Now Is Not The Time To Panic, like, to me, that reads like historical fiction because it's about satanic panic. Like, mm-hmm. and that is a more kind of widespread pervasive cultural moment rather than event, but exactly what you're talking about. It is about that, something specific to a time period. So it really reads more like historical fiction. I also think historical fiction offers something really interesting where we sometimes get, and maybe this is what this, maybe this is where we'll branch into a little bit about what makes something literary historical fiction versus his, street historical fiction, whatever we want to call that, women's historical fiction, which is obnoxious, but I understand mm-hmm. why that's the descriptor because of the covers and the way it's marketed. But a um, woman with her face turned away,
1: <laughs> we can, it's like everybody's picturing it right now. Everybody
0: knows <laughs> it. I mean, okay, I, whatever. We can get into that too. But, um, there's com- There seems to often be commentary on the present moment, like using past events, past cultural ideas for, you know, real historical characters or events um, or just cultural norms of a time period to offer some sometimes subtle, sometimes less subtle commentary on than now. Um, and I think that is – one thing that's always interesting to think about when reading historical fiction because you know if we just read a book that was written in the 1950s or the 1850s then we're thinking about what the book maybe says about the cultural moment in which it was written and takes place but when we look at historical fiction through that historical lens new historicism would be the theory that we would talk about here um, we're thinking, okay, what is the what is Zadie Smith saying about right now when she's writing a book about Victorian England? She's definitely saying something about Victorian England too, but what's the additional layer of commentary on the
1: present moment in which she's writing? I'm wondering if if part of what distinguishes more literary historical fiction from general historical fiction is the obviousness or subtlety with which that tie occurs. So I'm thinking of, I recently listened to The Invisible Hour by Alice Hoffman. And I really like Alice Hoffman's writing. I think that she weaves a story beautifully. She creates a tapestry. I think she's a great writer. Um, And I even think some of her writing, like I would pluck out and say, this is literary writing. Like this is really, really great and beautiful. Um, But the invisible hour, I ended up really not liking because it felt so much like she was hitting me over the head with the specific themes that she was trying to pull out to the point where certain phrases were repeated over and over again. And I was like, we get it. We Mm -hmm. get what you are trying to comment on in the present moment by telling this story from the past and that really frustrated me and to me excludes it from the conversation of some of these other great books that do have something to say about our present but are so much more absorbing in the past that we're completely sucked into the time period we feel like we are there we feel like we're wrapped in that detail we feel like we're in the moment with those characters and then upon reflection we can see how it is tied to the present. Or maybe it's an echo of something that we can see is tied to the present, but it is not like right in front of my face, super obvious to the point of being annoying. I th- I think
0: that is very true. I think probably literary historical fiction either does it more subtly and or sometimes I think that the the historic, like just historical fiction kind of genre fiction, um, isn't trying to do that at all. And that's also totally fine. Like maybe it's more obvious or maybe they're just like not really trying to say anything about our present moment, just trying to tell a good story set in the past, which is also great and fine. Um, but I do think, yeah, that both how the contemporary themes and contemporary commentary, is woven in. And the fact that it's there at all is one of the things that makes literary historical fiction literary. And so maybe now we should talk just a little bit about what we mean when we say literary. I It's because literary fiction is often described as a genre. But to me, literary is more just like a descriptor than a mm-hmm. genre. Is that how you think of literary too? Because you even said just now that some of the Alice Hoffman writing was very literary writing. So Mm -hmm. what do you mean when you say that?
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, A specific statistic comes to mind when we're differentiating. So between 2000 to 2020, three quarters by one estimate, 80% by other estimates, three quarters of the novels that were shortlisted for major prizes took place in the past. So – 75 to 80% of the novels that were shortlisted meaning they made it to the final round for major literary prizes were historical fiction. Um I hate to automatically just be like, well, if it's literary, that means it's prize-worthy. <laughs> but it's an easy marker. It's a really easy way to say this is this is literary fiction and they're writing in historical fiction. <laughs> Um, So I think that that trend is really significant. Um, And those sort of highbrow prizes do say something about literature, capital L. Um, So to me, it's kind of that like prize worthy or is it going to stand the test of time for future generations? Um, Is it something that maybe a teacher or professor would bring into the classroom. Um, upon literary merit, I think of that. Um, I don't want to boil it down so far, but like it seems really blatantly obvious to me, and that's why I say women's historical fiction, that the general historical fiction category is dominated by women authors. Whereas if you go into award-winning historical fiction or, quote, literary you've got authors of every gender.
0: Yeah, that that's that's a good and interesting point. And I do want to talk a little bit more about this women's women looking away <laughs> books. Um yeah, I I think too when I consider a book literary, I think that the writing matters as much, if not more than the plot. Like that which is ugh, this is hard because I, 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 that sounds like I'm saying that the writing doesn't matter in other fiction, which is not what I'm saying. But when I think of something that's literary, I think of a book that is trying to do something particularly unique or original or just beautiful with the writing, the structure, the craft itself. And there are all kinds of embedded problems in how we think about what makes some the craft of something good because we're all kind of taught that. But I even think like the literariness is almost more about the effort of the, the craft, <laughs> not even the like execution. Like what is the person, what is the author trying to accomplish with their writing and their craft? Like just think about with the Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff, which I don't think anyone would argue is not literary, and how she talked about in a, in some interviews that she initial, she wrote an entire draft of it in iambic pentameter. And that's not the version we ended up getting, but that is an example of somebody trying to do something with craft. Like, what happens if I put the words down on the page in this way instead of this way. That intentionality to me definitely is a marker of
1: literariness,
0: even if the execution falls flat for me.
1: So I was thinking of this distinction as I was kind of like reading up on this and soaking in some of the stats. And I think what you get at there is this is a good transition. So I'm thinking of two authors who write really about like the same time period, same topic, but I would say one is considered literary and the other is not. I'm thinking of Hilary Mantel, who wrote the Wolf Hall trilogy, and Philippa Gregory, who is prolific and has written many, 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 many series on very similar topics, people in history, events, um, and yet Hilary Mantel is like this award-winning, highly lauded author of literary historical fiction. And Philippa Gregory, I would say people would shelve her on that women looking away <laughs> shelf, the the women's historical fiction category. And maybe part of the difference there is like, these are both very intelligent, talented women. Philippa Gregory has at least one PhD and has studied and is a historical expert on what she's writing on. So that's not to say that she's not an expert or that her books don't have a certain historical depth to them. But she is prolific. So she's writing more shorter books over a wide array of genres. She's even written YA books. Whereas Hilary Mantel devoted her life and her work to this, like these chunky, chunky, huge books that are a lot more Detailed and don't specifically just focus on the the women main characters. Um, and I think these these are some authors that you could make that distinction between, like one's probably literary and one is not. And it they're writing about the same thing, like I said, but their approaches to their work seem different. I don't know how Philippa Gregory feels about. That <laughs> she's she's still living. Hillary Mantel is not. Um, I don't know if they came at that work intentionally or if Philippa Gregory had hopes for the same kind of career that Hillary Mantel had and landed in a different place. I don't know. Yeah,
0: it, it's interesting. And I mean, I I've, I have I think I've read one or I think maybe two Philippa Gregory books, um, and. I you know, I think this is where where like a definition like, well, literary books have beautiful writing can fail us because there mm-hmm. are passages in Philippa Gregory books that are very beautiful. Like she can write too. Yeah. I don't feel like those books are trying to subvert, question, challenge. I feel like they're trying to entertain. And I, again, I could be wrong. Like you said, I'm not in her her head, but- mm-hmm. That is – and they are very entertaining. And if I'm going oh, yeah. to choose a movie version of something to watch, it's definitely going to be a Philip Gregory <laughs> story. Those were
1: totally some of those gateway historical fiction books that bridged me from royal diaries to adult literary fiction. historical fiction, yes. adult fiction today. Yeah. And the fact that they were entertaining enough to a 13, 14-year-old speaks volumes. And that is no small feat. And they
0: are subversive in the fact that they're saying, let's focus on the women here mm-hmm. rather than than the men. Um but I feel like Hillary Mantel's whole project was I want to change the way history remembers Cromwell and I'm going to do that with a really intense challenging to read <laughs> structure which is she basically never mentions she never uses Cromwell's name. Not never, but the whole thing is he did this, he did this, he did this. You have to remember as a reader that the he is Cromwell and where you are, and it's very wordy. And I can't necessarily say I enjoyed Wolf Hall, but I'm really glad I read it, and I feel like it changed my
1: perspective in some ways. So – I'm trying to think of what else I have to say about literary historical fiction. I just I think a lot of writers who are themselves like in that literary fiction category, who are literary writers, who are prize winning authors, they're writing historical fiction. We've got Colson Whitehead, we've got Jesmyn Ward, we've got Lauren Groff, we've got so many. Um, and so I don't know if I have that much more to say about it. Do you want to talk about the women facing away from the book covers on on here? Yeah, I I do want to and before we
0: before we get into yeah. to them. I I have been thinking because I I do think that this year there were just all of these historical fiction books that came out by literary authors some of whom have never written historical fiction before like Let Us Descend is Jasmine Ward's first historical fiction. Um, Lauren Graff obviously wrote Matrix, but like Matrix was kind of a break for her. And now she followed it up with a second work of, of literary historical fiction. Um, and so it kind of felt like, whoa, what's happening right now? Even Ann Patchett, she doesn't write a ton of historical fiction so much as, as as Tom Lake is much more again like grounded in the history not in a specific event but in a very particular time and place and i i for so for some time i've been thinking like is this is this new and then looking back i don't think it's that new like we've we've done an episode on beloved which is like the epitome of literary historical fiction but I do wonder if, like, there's a little bit <laughs> right now of like, how do we write about this present moment? Like, from authors, like, I would be baffled. Like,
1: yeah, politically,
0: things are just a mess and so polarized. You have to consider whether you want to write about COVID, if you're going to write about the now, like, how do you integrate technology into? fiction that's contemporary because you know having having a book set in the present that doesn't heavily involve around characters like checking social media just doesn't feel authentic but that also me- means like it seems like it feels so dated and people don't necessarily want to read about that in fiction so i do also wonder if there's just a little bit of a like i don't know how to write about when we are right now And so now's my moment to reach back for historical fiction. Oh, Zadie Smith, too. The Fraud is her first historical fiction. And she wrote about that in the New Yorker about how she thought she would never write a historical novel. And she just finally had to. So I don't know. That's just a, a little, like, a little pet theory or just question I'm wondering about. Like, what I'm wondering really, what is contemporary literary fiction going to? look like going forward with all of these questions and and issues that we're now having to engage in.
1: Okay, I have I think two thoughts about this. Okay. We'll see if I can remember everything. <laughs> if you to get say. to at least one, that'll be great. <laughs> right. <laughs> um so yes, this is obviously this has been trending for 20 years or so. This trend in favor of historical fiction especially in literary circles, right? Um, but I do think as far as contemporary literature, genre fiction is really where it's at. It's not just about historical fiction. Literary genre fiction is having a moment. Literary, sci-fi, and fantasy, N.K. Jemisin. Um, Literary mystery. Like genre fiction is so popular among readers right now. And if you're an author, you don't just want to write a book and publish it. You want people to read it. Right. <laughs> so there is, I think, an element of audience to this and an element of what is selling. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I listened to a podcast on this that I found very interesting. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's from On The Media of several months ago. It was recommended by one of our patrons, actually. Um, I think it was Emily. Um, so thanks, Emily. <laughs> um, but... Um, on that podcast, they said, like, maybe if you're vying for a highbrow literary prize, you write historical fiction because it doesn't date your work. So like you were saying, how do you, how the heck do you write about the present moment with all of its complications? I would argue a lot of people just aren't. Either they're writing a contemporary fiction novel um, that is kind of like You can tell it's set now, but there aren't a ton of grounding details that make you feel that way, Um, unless you're Ann Patchett and you're just going for it in Tom Wake, right? (laughs) Um, But setting something 40, 50 years in the past means you're not dating it. 40 years from now, someone can read it and it will... Echo and speak um, and live on because it's not, it doesn't feel dated the way some of our literary classics do. The way, um, like, if we're reading a book from the 1980s, it's dated in a way that reading historical fiction set in the 80s is not from our modern perspective. So, when you're vying for these literary prizes, having it last, having it survive decades, having this sort of timelessness by looking at the past is a way to do that. Um I found that point really interesting, but also I just think genre fiction is having a, a major 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 moment and we're going to see a lot more genre mashups just for the trends.
0: Yeah, I I think that's that's true. I also I think that that we love on the internet, we love labeling genres and it is fun to like think about literary genre fiction and various mashups. I I I agree that it's having a moment, but it also makes me, and maybe this is an episode for another day, curious, like, are these, like, literary literary genre fiction sort of things, also, are they that new? Or are we just kind of thinking they have a moment? Because I think about something like True Grit, which is a literary Western. Like, of course, They've been around for a while. I don't know how pervasive, but that could be fun to research too. like what some of the roots of some of this literary genre fiction and what we're seeing, seeing now. I will also say poor Lauren Groff, Jasmine Ward, James McBride and Colson Whitehead. If their ploy was (laughs) to get awards by writing historical fiction, it did not work. And unfortunately. Unfortunately. And there are other They're they're still eligible. They
1: yes. Could, could totally. Um, um James McBride, too.
0: He did I say James? A McBride? good bit.
1: I don't remember. He did win. I know you said Colson Whitehead. And and um,
0: James McBride won the National Book Award for The Good Lord Bird, which is one of my favorite works of literary historical fiction. It is so good. But I
1: the Heaven and Earth grocery store was also great. Yeah, he writes a lot of really great historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Um okay, well we definitely are sneaking into book recommendation territory here. We've talked about a lot of them. Do you want to just before we get into that, talk about the women's historical fiction? Yeah.
0: But I don't I yes, I do. <laughs> I don't know that I have all that much to say. It's just it's a curiosity to me. Number one, like why it is such a popular genre. It's not that I don't like it. I just don't know that I have the language to unpack why it's popular and why sometimes I'm drawn to it. I also just don't understand why every book cover looks the same, except that I guess guess it just must make good marketing where you go in and you see that book and you're like... I know what the vibe is. I know what the vibe is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I know what the vibe is here. I know what I'm getting. Um, to me, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, even though it might kind of sound that way, I see those books and I think, like, that's my mom's next book club pick. Mm-hmm. And my mom has good reading taste. Like, we swap books back and forth all the time. And, like, that's not an insult to my mom right? Or to yeah. middle-aged women's book clubs. It's just how many times can you talk about World War II? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think that there is, like, people like familiarity. And so going into something where you do have some familiarity with the time period, but you're learning a new aspect of it, that can be really, really interesting and comforting to readers. The same way that I love reading romance novels because I know the framework of the story. I know how it's going to end. I think there's something really comforting in historical fiction. Um, And I don't know, like a lot of Dad's really like reading World War II nonfiction, like my dad. So it's kind of like it's a very fascinating time period, first of all. Um, I think The Woman Facing Away on the book cover extends to like the 50s and 60s as well. It's not just World War II anymore. I think there are other time periods. I think Lessons in Chemistry saw huge success because it is a really prime example of women's historical fiction. It's a woman's story. It is marketed towards women, and it is historical fiction. Um, and so, even though women's historical fiction like might be a little bit cringy to some, like to me, it's just it is just a descriptor. Like mm-hmm. these are women are writing these books for women about about primarily women.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really like everything you just said. I also this is just a caveat. I think Viking the publishing imprint. They are really good at packaging their genre fiction to look literary. <laughs> and it's oh, like lessons not. in chemistry? Yes. yes. <laughs> in my opinion, it's usually not particularly literary. Um, but they know how to put that literary cover on their books. Okay. I also had a thought while you were talking and again, this is also going to sound derogatory and I do not mean it that way. But <laughs> you know how they say about toddler picky eaters that sometimes like like they don't want to eat, they get nervous about eating like a banana because mm-hmm. sometimes bananas are really sweet and sometimes they're not so sweet. And sometimes they have brown spots and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they're mushy and sometimes they're firm or like same with like berries. Like sometimes they're sour and sometimes they're sweet. So you pick it up and you don't know what you're going to get versus like a package of goldfish. They know exactly what it's going to be like every single time. And I feel like Mm -hmm. this about
1: these books. (laughs) so true
0: <laughs> that there' and that's the comfort level right like you just you know what you're gonna get every single time and there might be of course there's a variety within that but it's not like going into maybe some of these more literary or obscure books where you're just like I have no idea what this is gonna feel like and that can be uncomfortable sometimes that's not the reading experience you want so yeah,
1: we're not saying these books are like comfortable reads a lot of them deal with really hard, horrible, tragic moments. It's the
0: knowing what you're going to get. Knowing the vibe going in, knowing what to expect. I do Mm -hmm. think, too, that one of the things that I think probably, like, makes for um, not comfortable, but just, I don't know, that knowing what you're going to get is the clear good and evil in a lot of these Mm. stories versus, like, more moral ambiguity in, in other historical fiction. And there, this is a like spectrum. Like it's not to say that all of the books that are women's historical fiction really lean into that black and white morality, but a lot do, um, versus other stories where maybe the morality is a little bit more nuanced or complex or ambiguous.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I think that's super smart. We didn't solve anything here. I think maybe like most of our Modern Readers episodes, we have more questions than answers by the end of these. But I do think that um, we uncovered some really interesting things about literary historical fiction today. And we already talked about some really great books. So I think that we should share a couple of historical fiction books that we've talked about on the podcast, and then maybe just like two or three a piece um, recommendations at the end here.
0: Okay, so on the podcast we've talked about *The Remains of the Day* by Kazuo Ishiguro, and what I think is so great about Ishiguro is he writes like slight futuristic dystopian sorts of things and historical fiction, and he bring in both. He's offering commentary on contemporary life. It's so brilliant. So we have an episode on The Remains of the Day. We also, of course, have an episode on Beloved by Toni Morrison, one of our first episodes, one of our favorite books that we've talked about on on the podcast, and Lonesome Dove, which we read as our big book of summer two summers ago, not this last year, but the year before. And both really liked. And that is definitely, it won, it won awards. And, but I feel like the argument could be made about whether or not it's super literary. I think it is, but I just think someone could question it.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. It was made into a miniseries. It's, it's not just literary historical fiction by our definition. It's also a Western, which is very much a genre fiction. Um, yeah, I consider it literary too, but yeah, I think that that could be a good argument. Um, so we'll include links in the show notes to those episodes so you can go back and listen to them. And Sarah, I have a couple of favorites to recommend. This is another one that I don't always think of off the top of my head because I consider it a classic, but it is also historical fiction. Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe Mm -hmm.
0: is historical
1: fiction, um, about colonization and, um, it's, a really fabulous book. I'm sure we'll get to it on the podcast someday, but I, um, I, I think that it's one of those books that does speak still to the present moment, but, um, speaks to the time in which it was written as well as the time that Achebe is writing about. So, um, that one comes to mind and I think it pairs really nicely with Homegoing by Ya yeah, Gyasi. Um, which is also just one of my favorite historical fiction novels of all time and absolutely earns the title of literary historical fiction. Yeah. We didn't even talk about
0: historical fiction that bridges into the present because I think that is another trend and and it feels so appropriate to me because I think we just are – this isn't, of course, the first time this has happened in the in the long view of humanity, but we just really are in a moment of like, how did we get here? And Mm -hmm. how does, how do the actions of our ancestors impact who we are today? And so we see a lot of that in, in fiction. Um, I really love Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, which is World War II historical fiction, but definitely literary and also speculative. It's, I would say it's speculative. It begins with the main character, Ursula, sitting across the table from Hitler about to shoot him. And then it goes back to her birth. And we see her born and then immediately die. And then on the next in the next chapter, we see her born and live a little bit longer and then die. And we go through all of these iterations of the possibilities of her life to see which version could have ended ended her up at the moment we began in. And it's so fascinating. Um, I think that actually and um, Atonement by Ian McEwan, we paired with the remains of the day. So just if you're liking this conversation, go back and listen to that episode because we have a lot of good literary historical fiction for you there.
1: I think that Maggie O'Farrell uh, she's probably not one of the authors that kicked off that sort of literary author going into historical fiction. There probably are others, but with Hamnet, I do think she kind of started something.
0: Yeah, she did. I mean, it, it is kind of amazing to see how, I mean, it, it's not like she was very well regarded before, but I think she, Hamnet was in many ways a breakout for her. And then people have been going back. Like all of her books just got new editions. From vintage anchor mm-hmm. to Matt. And you know, when your book is getting like new editions with all these matching covers that you're selling well. And I think yeah. Hamnet and then the marriage portrait really, really did that. And I I think Lauren Groff too, like is an example of of that like author who wrote very well-regarded um literary fiction. But I I think it, Fates and Furies was very much her breakout, but I think she's finding a new audience with her historical fiction as well.
1: Can I just say this really, this thought really just occurred to me. And I'm sure it's not a blanket statement. It's not something that could apply to anyone because a lot of people start out read, writing historical fiction. But is there an element of when you reach a certain literary acclaim and you're making enough money? from your books and your writing career that you have the time to devote to historical research because that is a whole full-time part like it is three full-time jobs to do all of the historical research for these books and if you are working a job already or you're parenting which is more than a full-time job do you have the time for all of that research to write your historical fiction novel, especially if it's literary and you're like Lauren Groff who's going to write it in iambic pentameter first. <laughs> like <laughs> she only has time to do that because she gets paid well enough from her books that she can make that her full-time job.
0: Zadie Smith writes about that in that New Yorker piece. She says that writing a historical novel felt like writing a novel while simultaneously getting a PhD. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I think it is because of success. I also think perhaps like, you know, questions about the publishing landscape during the height of COVID maybe gave authors a little bit of cushion time to write, to do the research and writing that they wanted or needed to. Um, But yeah, I do think that there's something about already having achieved success and maybe like, oh, now I know how to write a novel and now I can integrate that additional layer of, of research into my my writing.
1: Well, we didn't... It's not like we cracked the code. There isn't a code to crack. Like we said, this is all murky, but this was a really fun conversation, Sarah. I'm so glad that we got to talk about this today. And readers, if you loved this nerdy genre deep dive, you should really check out our bonus content on Patreon. We hold these kind of literary landscape discussions, plus more casual conversations about issues in the publishing world. And for just $5 a month, you can listen to our Friday bonus episodes. For $10 a month, you'll have access to our classes, our events, and more. So if you love what you're hearing, go to patreon.com slash novel pairings to sign up today.
0: Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back soon with an episode on Blind Owl by Sadek Hadayat. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.